A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, if you've been around here any length of time around our church, I, I bet you've heard one of us uh, teachers around here share this quote with you before, but um, I'm going to share it with you again because of how much truth that I have come to believe is contained in this quote. It's a quote from an old pastor. His name is A.W. Tozer, died in 1963, but here's what he said. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The more I meet people, the more I listen to their life stories, I'm more convinced that that is so true. In our imaginations, when we think about God and what he is like, that picture that comes, that mental image tells you just about everything you need to know about a person. It tells you just about everything you need to know about yourself if you think hard about it. I believe it'll tell you a little bit about how you, how you live your life, how you feel in your emotional world, how you relate to other people, certainly how you relate to God, how you make decisions about your life. And I bring that up because I'm just convinced these days a major part of what the gospel writers are trying to convey to us when they wrote their recollections of the life of Jesus, they weren't just writing stories. I mean, they were writing stories. They were telling us what happened in history, yes, but they were writing theology. Now, what's theology? Well, theology is just what, what you think about God. What is he like? Who is God? The gospel writers, with every pen stroke, they want you and me as the reader to get this better, clearer picture of who God is, specifically God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. If you're new around here, I know I hadn't introduced myself yet. I had to get to that part first, but my name's Jason. I'm one of the teaching pastors around here, and as you see on the screen behind me, uh, we're learning these days from uh, the Gospel of Mark. Mark, a follower of Jesus who wrote uh, his uh, account of the life of Jesus. We believe most of his information came from uh, Jesus' follower, Peter. But we titled it the King Jesus Gospel. Because, like we said a few weeks ago, what Mark chooses to write in his gospel, and, and let's be clear, he chose which stories to include and which ones not to, because we also know that if you wrote everything Jesus said and did, you'd have a whole lot more books. <laughs> but we have these four, and they, they chose specifically, each writer chose specifically what they wanted to share with us from the life of Jesus, because they had a purpose, and Mark had a purpose. 
And, and it seems as if Mark was trying to answer really a couple of questions for us, the reader. He wants us to understand what, what kind of a king is Jesus. If Jesus is king, what kind of a king is this? And what's his kingdom like? Because a king has a kingdom. Jesus went around, and his main message was the kingdom of God has come. It is here. It is now. You can get in on it. Follow me. And remember what I said earlier. Mark is just not trying to write down what happened. Mark is doing theology. He's trying to teach us about God through the person of Jesus. And so last week, we looked at a series of these stories that Jesus told. We call them parables, right? Jesus told these stories as illustrations about what the kingdom of God is really like. Now, after Jesus gets done with his teaching, his parables that we learned about last week, and by the way, if you missed that message, you should definitely go back and watch that. Nathan did an outstanding job on that. But when Jesus finishes his series of parables about the kingdom of God, he kind of goes on, well, a flurry. <laughs> he, he just goes on a flurry of really just miracles, one right after the other. In fact, we're not sure exactly if, if all of these are chronological, but it seems scholars believe that maybe the next four miracles that Jesus performs happen maybe within even a 24-hour period. So it's just a flurry of activity. And today, we're going to look at all four of these miracles. We're going to have to go through them a little bit fast, but we're going to try to get to them all. But again, as we look at these miracles, I want to remind you, as you listen and as you, as you lean into this, Jesus has not stopped teaching. Just because he finishes the parables and then he goes on the flurry of miracles, Jesus is still teaching. He is still teaching us about what the kingdom of God is like because the miracles are the teaching. In fact, uh, a New Testament scholar, his name is Mark Moore, he says this. He says, miracles are somewhat like enacted parables of the kingdom. I think he's right. Because with every miracle Jesus performs, he is saying something to you and to everyone witnessing them. This is what the world looks like when God is king. When God has his way. When God is fully in charge. Look what happens. That's what he's teaching us. That's the kingdom of God that Jesus came to proclaim. Jesus would go on to say, if you see me do something, you just need to know. I didn't do this on my own. I'm just doing what God does. I do what the Father does. What I'm like, it's what the Father is like. You have a picture of God? Look at me. You'll see him clearly. You've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus would say. So as you see these miracles, as we walk through each of them, here's what I want you to look for. Look for the king and look for the kingdom. Because the miracles are the parables. They are the pictures for your imagination and for mine to get a better glimpse, a better picture, a better idea of who God really is. Now, if you're tracking with us, we're, of course, in the book of Mark, but we're right at the end of chapter 4. And this is actually where Nathan left us last week. I'm going to kind of overlap what he taught, and I want us to focus in on what the reading that you just heard, uh, the, mir the first miracle that Jesus does in this series of four. Jesus finishes teaching, he gets done with the parables, and then he gets towards the end of the evening. And he and his disciples decide to hop into a boat, and they're going to cross over and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, probably about five miles of a, of a, of a sail. On their way in the boat, a storm rolls up. 
And it's a very common thing in that part of the world. In fact, uh, the Sea of Galilee, in case this interests you, it's about 685 feet below sea level, but it's surrounded by mountains that get as high as about 2,000 feet. And so what happens is when the air pressure changes and the wind begins to sweep down into the sea, it comes roaring down these mountains, and it can go really fast, really, really quickly, and it can stir up these really serious storms. In fact, the word that Mark uses in this passage to describe the storm is the same word that they would have used to describe a hurricane. So this is not just a little rainstorm, right? This is bad. So the boat, of course, is being rocked back and forth. They're starting to take on water. And the disciples realize, we got to start working. we got to bail ourselves out, or this thing is going down. And again, please don't forget this. A lot of these guys in this boat, they've been fishermen their whole lives. They know the sea. They know how to handle storms. They think they're in danger. So this is not just some little normal thing. This is serious for them. They need all the help they can get. They've got to bail this uh, boat out of the water. They've got to just weather this storm and possibly get to the other side. So they're thinking they might go down. So they look for all the help that they can get, and they look for Jesus. And what they find astonishes them. Jesus is literally sleeping with his head on a cushion in a hurricane, y'all. Look at the king. Look at his kingdom. You see the picture? Storms come, and the king sleeps through them. That's what it's like when the king gets his way. That's what it's like in the kingdom of God. So they wake him up. Not because they think he can do anything about the storm, mind you. They just need help bailing out water. They just need some more arms. They need some more hands. And Jesus wakes up. Can you picture that? There's a hurricane storm going around him. Jesus wakes up, does a little stretch thing, you know, open, you know wipes the sleep out of his eyes, looks around, and says one word. Quiet. Be still. And everything does. Everything's still, and it all stops. Jesus looks at his disciples, and it's as if he says to them, why are y'all so afraid? It's like, I'm really tired. I'm going to go back to bed now. (laughs) And what Mark tells us next is significant. He says the disciples were utterly terrified. Now, about five seconds ago, they were terrified of the storm. Now, they're terrified of who's in the boat with them. Because up until now, they'd seen Jesus. He'd wielded power over sickness. He'd wielded power over diseases. But up until then, they had never seen anyone with the power over the created world, over nature. Because here's what they knew. The only one who has power over nature is the one who created it. When they get to the other side of the lake, which is about five miles across, it's probably somewhere between 9 p.m. and midnight. They land on a beach and all around are these tall cliffs that run right up to the water. And as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, a man possessed by multiple demons comes running down to the shore. This guy is seriously disturbed. He lives out among the tombs, half naked, if not fully naked, screaming and cutting himself with rocks. Jesus takes charge over the demons and commands them to leave this man and he sends the demons into a herd of pigs grazing up on one of the cliffs. And because Satan and his demons destroy everything they touch, this herd of 2,000 pigs goes running off the cliffs into the sea and drown. Now, when the pig farmers and all the people in town come down to the beach to see what had happened, 
There sits the man that used to terrorize their town, fully clothed in his right mind with Jesus and the disciples, probably warming themselves up by a fire getting dry from the storm they just went through. And Mark writes that the people were terrified and they begged Jesus to leave, probably because he just cost them a fortune by killing their pigs, but maybe because they just didn't know what to do with a man that had that much power and authority. And so Jesus leaves, he's a gentleman. He won't stick around where he's not wanted. Just a side note, as Jesus is getting back in the boat, the man who is possessed begs Jesus to let him go with him. But Jesus says, no, he says, I want you to go all over the area and tell people what God did for you tonight. And here's what's fascinating. The next time Jesus visited that region, he was met not by a crowd who wanted to kick him out, but a crowd who welcomed him. It was a crowd so large that when Jesus miraculously fed them, there were over 4,000 of them. How do you think the hearts of the people in this region changed? Probably because of a former demon-possessed man whose story went viral. So that's two miracles down, two to go. Jesus and the disciples get back into the boat and cross back over to Capernaum. Needless to say, it's been a long sleepless night, except for the nap Jesus got in the boat. They land and the crowds they were getting away from are right there waiting for them. And in the crowd is a man named Jairus. He's the leader of the local synagogue and he has a 12-year-old daughter and she's very sick, right at the point of death. Jairus begs Jesus to come and heal his child. And Jesus says, lead the way. So they head for Jairus's house. Mark tells us that there's a crowd all around Jesus as they walk into town. He's completely surrounded. And in this crowd is a woman who has suffered from a bleeding condition for 12 years. We're not told the specifics, but it's most likely menstrual bleeding that her doctors could not stop and could not cure. The law of Moses and social customs would have made this woman a total outcast. Anything and anyone she touched would have been considered unclean. She could not enter a place of worship. She would not be welcomed in public if anyone knew. So just by being in this crowd, she's taking a huge risk, but she won't be denied. She presses through the crowd thinking, if I can just touch him, I know he can heal me. And her faith was rewarded. She was able to just touch the tassels on Jesus's garment and immediately she was healed. And she felt it and so did Jesus. Jesus stops and so does the crowd. He says, somebody touched me. And it's like, of course somebody touched you. This entire crowd has been touching you. But this was different. Jesus wants to have an encounter with whoever it was that received his healing. And suddenly, the woman knows she's been caught and she's terrified. She knows she's gonna have to explain the most embarrassing thing about her to everybody there and to Jesus. You can imagine she's just waiting for the anger and ridicule and rejection. But she does the only thing she can do. She falls at Jesus' feet, trembling, and she tells him the whole story. But in the midst of her fear, she doesn't hear anger or rejection. She hears the word daughter. It's the only time in the Bible Jesus calls someone daughter. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Your suffering is over. And with that, Jesus has just reinstated her back into the community. One more miracle to go. So about the time that Jesus is finished his conversation with that woman, something begins to happen again in the crowd. In fact, someone comes running up to the crowd, and they find Jairus. And Jairus hears the worst news he's ever heard in his entire life. If you're a parent, just imagine. A friend from the house shows up. Jairus. It's too late. 
There's nothing more to do. And he's like, no, no, I don't, I don't want to hear it. I was, I was just about to get Jesus. Let's just go home. Your wife needs you. Your family needs you. It's time to grieve. Jairus, your daughter's dead. She's gone. Jesus overhears this in the midst of this big crowd and all the commotion. And he stops. And he says those words that we've been listening to him say all day long to everybody he's encountered. <laughs> he says, just don't be afraid. Don't fear. Keep trusting me. It's going to be okay. So they arrive at the house where Jairus and his family are grieving. And Jesus, he won't let the crowd go any further. He's like, this is, this is not for the crowd. He dismisses them. He sends them away. And he only takes Peter, James, and John into the house. And Jesus has the audacity when he walks into this place where there's mourning going on and people grieving. In fact, in that culture, they would have had people from the synagogue, professional mourners to play music and to, to wail because it was a sign of the grief that had come into that home. And Jesus has the audacity to walk into the midst of that and say, just like he said to the storm, quiet, peace, let's stop this. In fact, he says to the crowd that's gathered in the house morning, he says, guys, she's not dead. She's, she's just sleeping. How offensive is that? Can you imagine somebody walking into a funeral or a wake and saying, she's not dead, she's sleeping. So they go up into the bedroom, and Jesus sees this little child laying there, probably starting to, just now become a cold, lifeless body. And he walks to her bedside, and very gently, he takes her by the hand, that cold hand, and he lifts her up, and he says this word. It's, it's hard to, to describe in English, but the word is like little girl or my child. It's like a, it's like a tender expression that you might say to your, to your child to calm them down. It's like, baby girl, sweetheart. And he says, wake up. And her eyes open. And Jairus, who had just gone from having the worst news of his life, stands there in amazement. In fact, it says the whole house was just astonished. Who wouldn't be? And he stands her up, and I just think it's funny. Jesus says, now y'all get her something to eat. Why would he say that? I don't know. She's a growing teenager. <laughs> She's been dead for 30 minutes. She needs some food. I don't know. Now, I spent several weeks just immersing myself in these miracles of Jesus, trying to prepare to teach them to you guys, and I started noticing just some themes that the Lord began to bring out to me that I, can't, that I could not unsee. I bet you noticed them too, but I want to point them out because I think this is what the Lord would have us see. I began to see what we call a dichotomy. You know what a dichotomy is? A dichotomy is when you've got two things at the same time existing in the same place, but they're polar opposites, and they seem like they couldn't coexist together. They seem like because they're so opposite, they would just cancel each other out. Two things you wouldn't expect to be there. These two opposing things are just in every one of these miracle stories. I kept seeing them over and over and over again every time I read them. Number one. We see in these stories the all-consuming, ferocious, authoritative strength and power 
of Jesus. The kind of power that strikes fear in the hearts of people. The kind that makes you want to run. The kind that makes you want to hide. The kind that makes you not want to be in its presence. It's just, it's just terrifying. Everyone is terrified. But number two, we see tender, gentle, merciful love the kind that reaches out and touches you softly and draws you in close to safety the kind of gentleness we don't see very often in our world these days but every so often we get a glimpse of this in fact there are times when we get to see this dichotomy when uh, my oldest daughter was just a toddler we had a game that we used to love to play Uh, the game was called airplane Uh, we just made this up and for the record, her mom hates airplane, okay? Uh, it's one of those dad games that moms have to leave the room, but we loved it. It was our favorite game. But uh, my daughter, she would run up to me and in the evenings when I'm home from work, beg me, Dad, do the airplane, do the airplane, do the airplane, and so we do airplane. Here's what airplane is. I would lie down on the floor on my back, and she would come up to me, and I would uh, hold her by the hands, and I would lean back, and then I would stick my feet out, and uh, her little chest and stomach would lean on the, ball, on the bottoms of my feet, and then I would lay back on the ground, and I would hold her up above me, suspended above my head on my feet, and she would fly like the airplane. And I'll tell you, that little experience <laughs> made her feel like she was flying, and you can see why mom hates this game, right? Um, Because sometimes we had an airplane crash, right? And I would sort of act like my legs were giving way and I couldn't hold her up anymore. And I'd be, oh no, the airplane's going to crash. And then I would let my knees buckle and she would just slide down my legs and she would just crash land right into the top of my chest. And of course, after that would happen, my little toddler would say, do it again. (laughs) And we'd do it again. But when we played airplane, here's what I saw from my vantage point. I would look up into my daughter's eyes, high and flying up above me, and I'd look into her eyes and I'd see terror. (laughs) She was so intense and she was so afraid. I mean, think about you being a little bitty body hoisted up like that. That's a power you can't imagine. It's a power that you really don't understand. It's, It's astonishing. It's impressive that dad could hoist me up like that and make me fly. And she was smart enough to know that At any moment, Daddy could drop her, because I could. I had the power to fling her across the room if I wanted to. I possessed all power. She was helpless in my arms, and she felt fear in that. But then whenever her body would fall softly and land into my arms and I would embrace her, I could literally feel the fear and the stress just fall out of her face and out of her body. Because she could feel the safety, the tenderness of being held and embraced by those long, strong arms that could have dropped her just a moment ago. What do you think about when you think about God? When you picture him in your mind, it's the most important thing about you. Jesus said, you see me, you see God. And so in these stories, what do we see? We see Jesus speak one word, and wind and waves do whatever he says. We see Jesus faced with a legion of demons hell-bent on destruction, and they are forced to only do what Jesus will allow them to do. They bow their knees before him. 
We see Jesus confront a disease that no doctor had been able to cure. And with one glancing touch from the hem of his robe, the chemistry in a woman's body is transformed. Her flesh is made whole again. And we see Jesus lift the hand of a dead body and life is breathed back into it. And this is just bonus content. Did you incidentally notice what everything that Jesus touches in these four stories? Jesus touches demons, a man with demons. He touches blood, a bleeding condition, and he touches death. Did you know that in the Mosaic law and the Jewish law, whenever a person touched any of those three things, anything that was demonically unclean, anything, anytime someone had, uh, was bleeding, and anytime there was a dead body, if you touched any of those things, you instantly became unclean. You were ceremonially unclean. You had to go through a process in order to be right with God again. Jesus touched all three of those things, and the opposite happened. Their uncleanness never affected him. His purity infected them. They became like him. So we sit in these two ideas, this dichotomy, this power of God and this tenderness of God in Jesus. So today, I want us just for a moment to sit in the dichotomy. I want us to feel that for just a moment. And I want to maybe adjust some of our images of what we think about when we think about God. It's going to come and he's going to lead us through that. So where is it that you need the power of God in your life today? How are you really doing? Where do you feel that you need his compassion to wrap his arms around you today? Maybe there's something going on in you and only you and God know about it. And you know that God has the power to be in control and he's big enough to deal with what you have. But... Maybe you just need to feel his comfort that he's near you right now. Maybe you know that God's strong enough to handle whatever is concerning you. You believe that he could be at work in any of this. But you wonder at times, is God small enough to care about me? Is he tender enough to care about me in my pain and what's happening? Maybe you know that God's in control and you believe that he's at work in our world but the thing that's going on with you and your relationships or in your body that you don't have any control over, you don't know that you can trust him with that. Or maybe you're here and you carry a lot of guilt over something. And you just need to know that Jesus' wholeness could make your sin white as snow. That he has power over sin. You need to know that he's near you and his love has never been pushed away by your sin so what we want to do is we want to give you a few moments today to experience God's power and his loving presence and right now I want to ask you if you haven't already to bring to your mind what is it you need to ask God for where is it in your life that you need his power and as you do we're going to spend the next couple of minutes, there's going to be some images on screen that display the power and the tenderness of God at the same time, we think, in a great way. In a way that 
only really good art can do. You're going to see these drawings of these large, powerful hands that are gentle enough to hold a small baby. And as you see them, I want you to hold on to any of the images that really impacts you and then experience the love of God for you. Talk to him about what you experienced then. Pray to him and ask him for what you need while we experience this together. you bow your heads right now and what I want to ask you to do is if there's some area in your life where you feel you need God's power or his merciful love and you would like for me to pray for you would you raise your hand right now just hold it up so I can see it if you're in the back okay just keep it up thank you put it down in just a moment while our heads are still bowed I want to ask you to in just a moment I'm going to ask you to simply place a hand on the shoulder of someone next to you or in front of you so that we can be connected and if that makes you uncomfortable I'm just going to say you don't have to feel obligated to participate but one of the most powerful ways that God shows his power and presence in our life is in our brothers and sisters in the church. So if you're comfortable and somebody's near you right now, would you, would you place your hand on their shoulder as we pray together? You can hold hands with them. Heavenly Father, Help us to experience your power and your presence in our lives. I pray that these brothers and sisters who 
feel a need for your strength in their lives for whatever you and they know is going on, that you would show up in a powerful way. And for those who need to feel your compassion, give them comfort and peace. And lead us as a church to display your loving power and the presence to one another. In the name of Jesus, we all pray. Amen. Church, Jesus is king. And he has ultimate power. Ultimate authority over nature. Over the powers of evil. Sickness. Disease. Death. He is king over everything in all creation. He has everything in his hands. They are under his control. He holds all things together. Without Jesus, nothing was created. Nothing would exist. And without Jesus, everything crumbles and falls apart. And when we truly see Jesus for who he really is, it should cause fear in us. That fear that makes us go, oh. That's why we call it awe. We should tremble in the presence of our great and powerful king. And yet, here's the dichotomy. What else do we see and hear in Jesus in these stories? We hear peace. We hear his tender words to his disciples after a storm has been calmed. Don't you be afraid of this. I have this. I got this. I'm here. We see Jesus welcoming open arms to a man who was crazed and suicidal. And he lifts him back to the place in society that he always wanted to be. He gives him back to his family, to his friends. And he sends him out with a new purpose and a new mission. We hear Jesus say to this frightened woman, expecting to be scolded and cast out just like everybody had only ever done to her in her life. And he calls her, my daughter, my precious, precious child. Your suffering is over. Now go in peace. And then we hear him call out, sweet little girl, you wake up. And he puts life back into her lungs. I'm telling you, Jesus holds more power than you can ever begin to imagine. And at the same time, he tenderly loves you just like his precious little child. Yeah, you ever seen a, a child, I've noticed this these days, you ever seen a child who just absolutely loves dogs, but they're terrified of dogs <laughs> at the same time? It's like every time they're in the presence of dog. I have a dog now, so I see this when kids interact with my dog. They, they love the dog. They want to be close to the dog. They're drawn to the dog, but yet they're so scared and they're so skittish and they hold back and they're oddly drawn at the same time. They are trembling at the same time, right? I think the same thing is happening when we encounter God. There's like this push-pull reaction when you approach him. And I think both of those reactions are good. They're valid. When you listen to the words of Jesus and you watch his actions, you're going to be drawn towards his loving embrace. But at the same time, you will never lose that reverent fear and awe. 
I think this is what makes the act of surrendering to Jesus such an amazing, exhilarating experience. At least that's what I'm experiencing these days. You know the power that he possesses, but as you start to give in to that love, that fear gives way to the freedom that comes from knowing that in Jesus I am fully, unconditionally loved. I am accepted while being safe and secure in the awesome power of his hand at the same time. My favorite singer-songwriter of all time, Rich Mullins, he's got this song where he talks about the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God. In another one of his songs, this is probably my all-time favorite lyric, he sings, Hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You've been king of my glory, Now won't you be my prince of peace? And the truth is, he's both. And because Jesus is both, church, you don't have to fear in this life for anything. You live in an unshakable kingdom where Jesus is king with more power to accomplish anything that you could ask or imagine. That's why author Dallas Willard says, this present world is a perfectly safe place for you to be. Because the kingdom of God has come in Jesus, and he holds all things together. And at the same time, he's holding you with the tender love of a father. Not like your earthly father. No, no, no. Better than that. A perfect father who has adopted you as his own. So today, as we end up this time together, we're going to just... We're going to sit again in these two pictures of God, and I want to put them clearly in your mind. God is strong and mighty and powerful, but he is also kind and compassionate and tender. And where is the best place we've ever seen those two images of God come together? It's on the cross. Because on the cross, we see the power of God defeating the powers of sin, defeating the powers of evil and the grave. On the cross, we see Jesus take the worst thing Satan and the powers of evil could ever throw at a person. He took them in his body, in his blood, and Jesus put them to death. And in the cross, we see the kindness and the mercy of God on display. The king of kings dying a criminal's death to make it possible for the very people who would whip and mock and crucify him to be made right with God forever. We see the love of God in Jesus breathe out these words, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He said those words for the sake of the same people who caused him to take his last breath. The beautiful love of God on display in the picture of the most horrifying thing you can imagine, the cross. Because see, in the cross, we see the power of God defeat the powers of sin. And that only happens when Jesus restrains his power enough to allow himself to be killed, to be tortured. Remember what Jesus said. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down, but then I take it up again, too. He chose it. Can you imagine that? The hands that formed mountain peaks laid down on a piece of wood and pierced for your sake. It ought to cause us to tremble in awe and then weep with joy at the same time. So this morning, as we do as a community every Sunday, we honor Jesus' sacrifice on the cross We come to the table, and we sit together. We take those emblems of bread and juice. You you should have been handed those when you came in the room. And if you're unfamiliar with this communion 
uh, ceremony. This is simply a way for us to symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus that was given for us. And in just a few moments, I'm going to invite you, and you can eat and drink those symbols, and as you do, give thanks to God for Jesus. But before we do that, here's what we're going to do together. I want to ask you to just pause and marvel for a moment at the power and compassion of God on display on that cross. So in a minute, you're going to see some images again. They're going to come up on the screen of Jesus on the cross. And just watch them. And as you see them, thank God for him. And as you do, allow your heart to just respond with whatever comes. Praise for how powerful and tender his love is. Wonder and awe at, at what he has done for you. And then when you're ready, as you're watching those images, feel free to go ahead and eat the bread and drink from the cup. And as we always say, if you're uncomfortable with this, that's okay. You don't have to participate. If you're not sure you believe what we believe, you're in the right place. It's okay. But I would encourage you to stay engaged with God. Use this time to maybe offer a prayer to him, maybe for the first time, and say, God, if all of this is true, I want it to be true. That's often the experience of people who hear the gospel, by the way. They maybe want it to be true before they know it's true. It's a sign that it's good news. And you can sit in that for a moment and just pray to God. We believe he'll begin to make himself more real to you. And then after a couple of minutes of us experiencing that together, the band's going to come back and they're going to lead us again to sing about the power and the compassion of God that we see in Jesus. So together... Let's sit in silence before the cross and thus receive.